I was about 1920. And he was 10 years older than me. He was like 29. At the start, it was like every other relationship. You know, loads of promises. Treated me really nice, said nice things. Being from another country, foreign, looks nice. That's what attracted me more. I thought, oh, he's a really nice guy. He knew what he was doing, whereas I was young and naive, like never lived on my own, still at home with mum and dad. He saw that. This radio documentary focuses on Paula, a young Irish woman. She reveals how she dealt with domestic abuse while raising two boys in a house of horrors. I used to go to college. I started off in Crumlin College. And so I met up with this girl, we made friends. And then in the meantime, I changed colleges into DIT. And then we met up one time and she was going out with another guy who was from Algeria and introduced me to this guy who was also from Algeria. So it was just two uh, friends that we met each other. My mum and dad had reservations. They were like, listen, he's a Muslim, he's from a different country and he's different beliefs. So I fought with my mum and dad over this so many times. And my dad was like, no, I'm not happy with this. And I'm like, no, you know, he's been living in Europe for 10 years. Muslims, he's really nice. They just kind of like, okay, then there's nothing we can do. I think they just, you know, a lot of people have an ideology of Muslims and how they treat women. So they're like, oh no, it's their daughter. And they're like, oh no. You know, I don't want my daughter going out with this guy. And at the time, I thought I knew everything. I just carried on. I wanted to see him, and I was so determined to see him. So I didn't listen <laughs> when I should have. <laughs> I moved in with him first. And then, you know, him being of the Islamic background, he was like, no, you know, I want to be married to you. So I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is a nice way. This is respectful. Yeah, it's better to get married or whatever. So that's what I did. I said, okay, we'll get married. You know, it doesn't matter if nobody knows about it, we'll get married. Like, my mum and dad know now, but at the time, because they didn't get on, he met them, and my mum and dad met him, but he knew that they would never agree to it. So he asked me to marry him. I married him in the mosque first, and then I married him in the registry office. Unbeknownst to my family, because he said, don't tell them, because they're not going to agree, they'll stop it. So the marriage was simple, me and him and two of his friends. And that was it at the wedding. My mum and dad know now, but back then they didn't. Now, looking back, I'm thinking, how stupid was I to do that? Like, I should have waited. He should have accepted my family. And then we should have had the wedding. I should have waited for a couple of years or whatever. And then, you know, if everything is okay, then... And how old were you when you got married? Um, Let me think, 21, I think, 21, yeah. My first son was born in 2002, so it was a year. I was married a year and then I had my first first born. It only came out in 2016, so nobody, nobody knew about it. Nobody knew. And even at this, I think probably even like family and relatives don't know, like it's just close family who know about it, so yeah.
So I was working for a solicitor and then I was in college at the same time. I started law. But then he became very possessive. He'd follow me to work. He'd be waiting, you know, around corners, seeing who I'm talking to. And then being in college, it was night college, so he had stopped me. He just like, no, I don't, I'm not happy with you going to college, so he stopped me going to college. He just became obsessive. When I was pregnant, that's when he started actually hitting me. That's when, you know, you know, the beatings would just start. Like, he'd throw things at me, disrespect me. And, you know, I just didn't tell him. You're kind of in shock that you don't tell anybody and then you're afraid, so you don't tell anybody. So I'm like, ah, oh, you know, you kind of forget about it. It wouldn't happen every day. So you'd be, everything would be okay. I'll be grand. Um, and you don't want anybody worrying. So then it's when I had the baby, um, our little boy, that's when things just got worse. Things just went downhill from, from then onwards. Like I'd have to be home at a certain time. So he'd limit me going to my family's house. He'd say, oh, you can go this weekend or next weekend you're not allowed to go. And then he'd say, you know, you'd have to be back at eight o'clock. I remember one time um, I was supposed to be back at eight o'clock and I wasn't. Um, I think my nanny was over in the house as well. I think it was like half eight or after half eight. And I remember bringing the, we lived in the tenement houses over this side of the city. And I remember bringing the baby up and giving it to him and going back down to collect like loads of presents that my family had bought for the baby. Um, and when I went up, he was like, oh, you're late. You know, you're in for it now. You're in for it. When you get back up these stairs, you're in for it. And I just thought, oh my God, like I just dreaded it. I dreaded it. And I remember walking back down my dad's stair with all the bag. I just want to say, please save me, like save me, you know. But um, I just said, okay, see you later, whatever. Took the bags, I went up. And like that night, he, you know, he'd just grab you by the hair. He'd, your legs were on the floor. Before you know, you'd be, you'd be beaten up. Um, you'd, sometimes it started with like marks on the face but then he got so smart that it wouldn't it'd be just your, your body be hit so your body be bruised because if, if your face is marked then you know everybody knows what you're going through but if it's not, if it's not your face then you know it's easily hidden and then you become afraid because he starts threatening like you know well if you try and leave you try and tell anybody I'm gonna you know I'll come after you I'll kill you I'll take the baby away I'll take him back to my country and um, I'll come after your family my sister was only about five or six at a time, so he threatened me, I'll go to her school, I'll take her away from, from your family. So all of that is in your head, so you just become, you, you become afraid of everything. And at this stage, I wasn't working, I was at home all the time with the babies. You become more isolated from everybody. I had no friends, no, no nobody, so I just had my family and I was limited to the days that I could see my family. So little bit by little bit, he was drawing me away from everybody. In between that, we had moved then to the north side of the city. So at this stage, I wasn't talking to my brother. Um, my dad didn't get to see my sister and my mum. I didn't plan to get pregnant because I was going through so much. I was like, I don't want any more with this guy. I want, you know, wait until, you know, he's grown up and I'll try and get out of the situation. I had no access to money. He took my money away. I wasn't allowed to watch TV, so I had, we had a TV, but it wasn't. It started off like, oh, you know, you're not allowed to watch men on TV, and then it started off, you're not watching TV, so everything was taken, and so you just hit into survival. He beat me, and then as my eldest boy was getting older, he'd beat my eldest boy, 
Um, and then I had the, when my other boy was about six, then I had another baby. And he didn't even want that baby, so I was beaten a lot when I was pregnant with him. He was hoping that I would lose the baby. I don't even remember being pregnant with him. I remember having him, but I don't remember being pregnant because I was beaten so much with him. He told me, he said, if this is a little girl, she won't open her eyes in this country. I will take her straight from the hospital, straight to my own country. I remember every night looking at that scan saying, please God, let it be a boy. I know I shouldn't be asking this, but please God, let it be a boy. Please God, let it be a boy. Like that, both of the kids were beaten. You went into survival mode. You didn't enjoy your life. It was just survival. It's just like, get up, you know, just try not make him angry, make him happy and hope for the best. And my kids were in and out of school. So my eldest was barely in school. My youngest never went to school up until 2016. And how old would have he been? One of them was 13 and the other one was seven. They didn't even have friends. They weren't allowed to um, associate with other kids. So they were constantly at home. So even when the eldest went to school, he was told you not to speak to any of the other kids. So he again, he would go to the school, secretly look at the with the child, see if he was speaking to him, speaking to any other kids in school. So doing what he did to you, to them? Exactly what he was doing with the boys, well, with the eldest one. He was such an abusive person that the kids were even limited to food. We were all limited to food in the house. So even getting up in the morning time, giving the kids their breakfast, knowing that, you know, if there wasn't more bread there left, he'd be complaining, you know, you ate too much bread. The kids ate too much in the morning time. So I'd get up early and there, I would hand make my own bread so I could give more to the kids. And you'd be on edge because as soon as you hear movement upstairs, oh, you know, he's out, he's out, he's up. So I'd be quickly getting his coffee and his breakfast and everything ready, you know. And he'd have to be alone having his breakfast. So he'd come to the kitchen. We weren't allowed in the sitting room. The sitting room was closed off, so it was literally from the kitchen to the bedroom. So I'd go upstairs, I'd make all the beds, make sure the kids were all okay. And then we'd come back down. We'd make dinner, we'd sit down, have dinner, but the kids were rationed to the foods. We were all rationed. He'd eat what he wanted. Um, it just depended on what humour he's in. He would just torment you. You could just be walking by him and he'd just pinch you on your arm, pinch you underneath. He'd know the sensitive parts of your skin and he'd pinch you. You know, he'd just throw things at you. We had a telly in the kitchen. If I even dared to look at it, he would just literally kick my chair. You know, when I'd go flying over, he'd grab me by the neck with a knife and he'd ask my kids, like, you know, do you want me to kill your mum? You know, and they'd see all this and they, they, don't, they wouldn't know what to say, like, you know. And then you become so numb to the pain that when it started, I'd be like, oh, I'd be crying and whatever. But then you become so numb to it that you don't cry. You don't let him see you cry. You're like, yeah, you do what you want to do. I'm not going to cry. But it's when you go to bed at night time, you'd be like, the tears would be just rolling out. You just want someone to save you. You just want someone to come and say this and it's going to be okay. And you go through the same process. The only time I got peace was when I went to bed. When I put my head in my pillow and I went to sleep, that was the only time that we all got peace. Honestly, I don't know how how you cope. You just you kind of just get into survival mode. You just accept it because you've accepted so much. You just accept it. Little things like um, I didn't have access to money. He had all the money, so it got to a stage where me and my older son start stealing money. So like he'd put money beside the radio, and we'd be like flicking twenty cent, ten cent coins underneath because he would break all my phones, and then he'd buy me another one. So all of a sudden, I had a, a touch phone. And at this stage, 
like this is in 2000 and what 10 11 12 i hadn't got a clue the internet hadn't got a clue i hadn't got facebook hadn't got instagram had nothing so i just i realized that i could get the internet the mobile data i was like okay i was with tesco's i could top up by five euro and i could go in and just you know check out what's happening in the world it was like i had no access to the world i wasn't outside my home i was inside my home so we would flick it flick it until we ended up with five euro me and my eldest son and we'd go and we'd, we'd top up the credit so we, and we'd just knock off the mobile data because he wasn't very internet aware himself so we would be able to check up things oh look at this you know or just listen to music or you know doing little things um, or even just getting a little bit of money he'd allow me to the shop once a week to collect my social welfare and but I'd have to be so so quick and I go to the shop and maybe buy a packet of bars of chocolates for me and the boys and we'd come back and we'd eat it really really quickly before he'd get up from bed I'd have to be home before he'd get up he wouldn't get up till about 11 or 12 so I'd have to be home I mean, well beforehand the kids would be eating their little bit of chocolate and we'd be hiding the wrappers and and then you know he'd get up and we're like okay There was times where my, my boy was going to school and he would bring him to school. This was going to primary school when he started. And he would limit him to breakfast in the morning. Like literally he'd have half a slice of toast and a small amount of milk or whatever. And he would be so hungry going to school. And this happened then when he went to first year as well. We would get toast, hide it, wrap it in, in tinfoil and hide it under my boy's bed. And I used to say to him, you make sure you wake up early. And you eat that breakfast before you go to, before he brings you down to have breakfast. And he would have that. Otherwise he'd be very hungry on school. And that's how you lived for many for years. For many years. Like my um my eldest would have been thirteen when we left, so thirteen years so well. And as you said before, he put his hands on yourself. Yeah. And also the, on the your boys kids. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Even from a young age it was my eldest felt it the most because he was through more than what the youngest would have been through. But the youngest had been through it since he was a baby. There was days where I thought he wasn't going to survive because literally he would put his hands over his mouth. He would shake him as a newborn baby. Oh, he would do like really, really horrible things to the kids, you know, um, as a baby. And then they were so afraid of him like literally if he said anything they would literally go to the toilet on the floor so there's so many times when I would turn around and say listen if you break something or you do anything just blame it on me just say listen my man broke it you know just blame it on me because if he's going to hit somebody at least he hits me he would laugh and say that I was like a goalkeeper because when he went to hit the kids I would jump in front you know he'd end up hitting me instead he said oh you'd know you'd make a great goalkeeper because I would try to protect them. Me staying there, I thought I was protecting them. If I'm there and I'm with them, but then I'm protecting them because he kept saying, I'm going to take them back to Algeria. I'm going to take them to my country. I'll never see them again. Or if you try and run, I'll come after you. I'll take the kids away from me and never see them. So in the back of my mind, I'm so afraid. I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't even risk it. At least I'm here and I can see them and I can protect them. I thought I was protecting them. But looking back now, I'm thinking, oh, that was the worst thing I could have done. So, like for any woman out there, just don't, don't stay for the sake of the kids. Just go, take the kids and go. We would fight. Um, he had problems with my dad, so me and my dad didn't end up speaking for many years. And um, with my brother as well, and then my mum. So we just didn't speak. When my mum had a, my mum had an accident, she fell down the stairs. That's when we start talking again, but very, very rarely. 
Now when she looks back, she realises, you know, I should have seen the signs. You know, she'd say to me, oh, I bought something for the boys. You know, we only live literally like around the corner. And she'd say, oh, if you're going to shop head down, I would run down to her, grab the stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to run back, you know, I have something on. Looks back, she's like, I should have realised, you know, I should have realised that, you know, the way he was. He was so nice to everybody. So, you know, he would be nice and people wouldn't pick that up. But now when they look back, they're like, oh, my God, yeah, now we see it. Now we see which way everybody wore. Me and the kids were so terrified, you know, when we're standing with him. And when they look back, they're like, oh, yeah, we should have realised that. Did anyone notice the abuse? I think my neighbour did, because obviously you can hear through the walls. So, like, when the kids are crying, I'm crying, or, you know, there's, there's words being exchanged. They would have heard it. And I remember passing by my neighbour's car, and there was a thing in the car window for, like, domestic violence. So I think he was trying to let me know. But at that stage, I was so afraid... If someone had to call the police and the police had to come to my door, I would have said, no, you're imagining things. That's not happening. Because he was standing right there in front, like beside me, so I wouldn't have. I kept saying in my head, listen, my boys are, you know, at that time, the eldest was like 12, 13. I'm like, he's nearly getting older. I'll be okay. Once they get older, I'll be okay. You know, you kind of hold on to that bit of hope. And what did your family think was going on? They thought it was me because um, during the process then I ended up becoming a Muslim during this process because he was he was practicing, well, so-called practicing. So I decided to take that route as well. So they were thinking, it's her. This is her. She's, she's chosen this way. So we don't want to interfere. We don't want to, like, you know, if this is what the life she has chosen, then let her be. So they thought it was me. They didn't know what I was going through. So, like, at night time I'd be thinking, oh, God, I wish you only knew that it's not me, that I do miss everybody, that it's not, you know, this is not really who I am. Like, I wish I could, you know, go just drop over and, you know, and you drop over to me. So, yeah, that would go through my head every single night, every single night that would go through my head. Abuse was a daily, daily basis thing from the moment we woke up. We would be hit with electric wires. Like I said, we weren't allowed to watch TV. Like little things, you had to watch what you were saying because anything you said could be taken in offence. And have you ever gone to Algeria? I've been to Algeria so many times with the kids, um, but it wasn't a holiday. I bring you from one place to another and you stay in that room or you stay in the house or whatever. But I remember one particular time being, being there and I was with the kids and there was a plastic bag and I read out a poem to the kids on the plastic bag. It was in Arabic. There's one good thing that I learned. I did learn how to speak another language. And I was in Arabic, so I read it to the kids, and the kids thought it was very funny, you know, it was an old saying. So he came back from being in his family's home. He came to the apartment, and the kids, being so innocent, said, you know what, oh, this is what it says on the bag, and they were laughing. And he just looked at me, and he just said, why did you read that out? And I'm like, oh, I just read it. It's on a plastic bag, like, it's a, it didn't mean any harm, like, it's a poem. He told the kids, come on, go to bed. And I knew when he told them, I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. I was there for about one hour with every pot and pan and plastic thing just whacked over me, on my body, water poured on my head. Um, God, I was lucky I didn't go blind that day. And the inside of my eye, there was, my eye was cut open. Um, for about one hour, he just kept beating me up, beating me up, all for a plastic bag. And I remember just going to bed and all one side of my body was just black and blue. So you're in a foreign country, you're after being beaten so badly, and you're just like, oh my God, like, what can I do? 
there's nothing you could do. And then to wake up in the next morning and him just, just you know, laugh and smile and think like there's nothing wrong. That was the worst of it. He just kind of like, okay, right then. You know, you just kind of get on with it. Every day it was like that. And it's only because my eldest was getting older, he was starting to see it. He was rebelling against it. And I'd have to like pull him back on it. Like, you know, don't do anything because it'll get worse. You know, just you're better off just not saying anything because it'll get worse. So your eldest obviously could see it was wrong. Wrong, yeah. Yeah, he could see it was wrong. And, you know, being a boy as well, you know, wanting to protect his mom, wanting to protect himself, he could see it. And I could see him starting to kind of wanting to hit back, you know. So at that age, he was 13. So he, he wanted to hit back. And he was obviously growing, he was getting bigger, stronger, yeah, taller. Yeah, taller, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Do you ever think maybe he was in fear now of his child that was growing up? Yeah, definitely. And he used to say that, you know, I have to keep him under control because, you know, he could one day, you know, destroy me. And he knew, he knew, yeah, he knew. So he would be tougher on him. He would hit him more to make him, you know, be more afraid of him, you know, so... He'd just look at the kids and the kids would be terrified. But I think as they were growing up, the eldest was growing up, he was he knew then, you know. And it's only a matter of time that he was going to get bigger as well, you know. And he's getting older, because at that time then, he was, you know, going into his 40s. So, you know, I was at the end of my 20s, he was going into his 40s, so he was getting older himself. It becomes your world. So, like, that's your little world, and you kind of look out the window to people moving on, but you know that's your world, and that's what you live in, and you just kind of, it's survival mode, you just go into survival mode, and you just accept it, and knowing that there's no way to get out. In my head, like, I was thinking, oh, I'd love to do this, and I'd love to do that. There was many, many a times where I thought I was going to kill him. Many of times. Like, I would just be in the kitchen, be washing the dishes and I have a knife in my hand and there's many a times where I just like I want to stab you so you can't hurt me anymore because I, I kept thinking if I run away he's always going to be there and he'll come after me but if he's dead then he can't come after me. And when did your freedom start to return? He would go back and forward to his own country by himself many times. He had the fear of God in me that there was no way that I would even move even when he left to his own country. When he rang, my phone was there, like, oh, yeah, and, you know, answer the phone. Even when he went, like, you know, we're like, yeah, you know, we can watch TV. And we can, we'll go shopping, you know. I had access to some money when he went away, so I'd be like, you know, let's scrimp and scrape on this and we'll, you know, maybe get a McDonald's. You know, we'd be go really quickly, I'd try and time it so I know he wouldn't be calling me at this time or whatever. But I never, ever thought to leave when he was gone to his own country. I was like, no, I'm not leaving because he'll come after me. The fear was there, it was always there. So, 2016, um, my eldest was 13, and he decided to ring my brother. He took my phone. My mum had given a phone to my eldest boy, but we would hide it. She thought that he was using it as a young kid going to school and whatever, but we would hide it. And so he had his own little phone that was hidden away from his dad. We had little hiding places. So he got my brother's number from my phone and he had called him one night. 
and said, listen, this is what's after happening to my mom. This is what's after been happening for so many years. And I'm tired. I, I want help. I don't want to be staying here anymore. Please help us. He came home and he said, Mom, I'm after contacting David and after explaining everything that happened. And I was like, oh my God, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that, you know. Oh, Dave's going to come here and he's going to, you know, try and take us away and things are going to get worse and you can't do that, you shouldn't have done it. But he came over to the house and he said, listen, I'm not saying do anything, but let's go and have a McDonald's. Let's go and have something. He was due to come home in two days' time. He said, let's go, let's have a McDonald's, let's sit, sit down, let's eat. I said, okay. So he was like, please, I can't leave you like this. You know, it was a relief and fear in one way to tell somebody what was happening. It's like becoming naked. It's like when you're telling your story, you're becoming naked because you're becoming vulnerable. You're letting everybody know what you've been through and what's going on in your home. And people, then you think people are judging you, saying, oh, you know, you're so stupid. Like, why are you staying there? But they're not living in it. So he said, you know, I can't leave you. Please, please, please. I'm, I'm begging you, please, you know, come and stay with me. Don't, we have to leave, we have to go. I went home that night, same house, and I thought about it, and I was like, okay, this is my only chance. If I don't leave now, I'm going to be, stay, like, stuck here for a few more years. So, just grabbed up a few little things, and my brother said, listen, I, I'll be around to collect you tomorrow. So, he came, I grabbed up a few little bag full of stuff, and went straight to his apartment, and we stayed with him. So then in the meantime, he came back in two days time to the house and, you know, he expected us to be there, you know, when he knocks at the door, I answer the door and everybody's there. But apparently he knocked the whole door down. He couldn't get in. He banged the whole window in and he's screaming all over the street, you know, where's my wife? Where's my children? They're supposed to be here. They're supposed to be here. So then the guards turned up with a barren order and said, listen, your wife has left. Your kids have left and you're not allowed in the house. Because we had gone to the Garda station. We gave them a big bag of knives that he had been keeping in the house. And I went down, I did like three or four hours of interview. Um, obviously because the kids were being beaten, I informed Tusla as well, so that they would be aware. They understood everything that I was going through and what the kids had gone through. So they became involved in it as well. Um, but I'm still in this little world. It's so hard when you're living like that for so many years, you know, 14, 15 years to come out of that little world because you start thinking you're doing wrong and he's still in your head so you you're hearing what he's telling you so all these years he's telling you you're nothing all these years he's telling you what he is doing is right and he's protecting you i was in and out of courts getting barren orders and and to see him in the court being a totally different person it was unbelievable like he just sat there and he cried he cried, I, I just in the court and I was looking at him and he's crying and he's begging me, please don't do this, please don't do this. But to be the stronger one and then look at him thinking, no, you deserve this, I'm not hitting you, I'm not beating you, I'm not mentally abusing you, I'm just telling the truth. So to see him crying, he was like, oh yeah, you know, you deserve this. And then he's going to my lawyer and he's giving him rings and saying, you know, ask her, tell her these are for her and tell her I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, he can take all those back, I don't want nothing. I want nothing from him. I want nothing to do with him. So, and then from that time onwards, I had never seen him. The last day was in the courts in 2016. I had never seen him because I got rid of all my telephone numbers, everything. So I had no contact with him whatsoever. With my eldest, is like I grew up with him rather than being... Because I was treated like a child in the house. So the kids saw me as like a sister to them, not as a mum. Maybe my youngest is okay, but the eldest, no. I was more like I was treated like them. You know, getting that freedom 
from having like not being allowed to do anything and then all of a sudden be given this freedom it's like it's great in one way but another way you're like you know you're gonna mess up you're gonna do you know silly things or whatever Um, from there then refuge I went out to Clondalkin to a, a women's refuge in Clondalkin because I didn't want to go back to my old home because I didn't want him to know where I was but eventually I did move back into my old home after it was like nearly two years in a year a year and a half in, in women's refuges things that everybody takes for granted in their life like going home being able to smile to open your fridge to take out what you want to be you know saying I need to go to the shop now I need to get this I've told people like even little things like hanging up a picture frame moving things in the bathroom I wasn't allowed to decide any of that like where things go where the shampoo went if I even moved the shampoo to another place it was a big problem you know hanging up a little picture frame deciding what you want to do with your home they were like big things to me like to do that what everyone else takes would have took for granted that when I went in I was like oh yeah this is great I'm able to decide to do this I think if my eldest son hadn't picked up the phone he really saved us like I see him as my hero because he saved me and he saved his brother he really really saved us if he didn't do it that day because I wasn't brave enough to do it maybe one day I would have because many a times I used to speak to him even though he was 13 I would speak to him about you know will we try and leave what, what would we do and where would we go we would speak I would speak to him like you know I was speaking to an adult when I left I was thinking he's going to come after me he's going to kill me because he told me I will kill you stone dead he said I'll kill you and I'll take the kids or if I have to I'll kill all three of you so he's told me that so many times so when you're living in that you're thinking he will do it he will do it like I came out of that situation I said to my brother he's going to kill you he's going to kill me he's going to kill everybody because that's the way I felt and you're being beaten every day so you're just thinking he would do it I know he would do it you know he'll he'll kill everybody he'll just you know, because you just see it. And now looking back, I'm thinking, oh my God, like, I lived with a psychopath and I didn't see it. I lived with it, but I didn't see it. I respect a lot of the Islamic religion. Like, there's a lot in it where I think, oh yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, it's really, really nice. And But no, I don't follow it anymore. I respect everybody who wants to follow it. I respect any religion, but for me, no, no. Because I think a lot of people can twist and turn words that they want to use for themselves. And then... You know, they can hurt a lot of people in the process. And that's what happened to me. I, I want to just be who I am. I pray, I believe there's a God and I pray because I believe that God got me out of this situation and he made me stronger in the situation. So, but no, I don't follow the Islamic religion. I would tell any woman that if a man lays his hand on you once, leave. Don't give him a second chance because once he does it once, he's going to do it again because he crossed that boundary. So he, he doesn't care. He's going to hit you. He's going to hit you again. And he needs help and you need to get out of that situation. After years of abuse, Paula is now in a happy, loving and healthy relationship with a new partner. And she has just given birth to a beautiful baby boy. This radio documentary, Behind Closed Doors, was brought to you by Melissa Partridge. And if you're affected by any issues raised in this programme, please contact Women's Aid at 1-800-341-900.